In this, the 14th episode of Beyond Bitcoin, two Daniels and a Tim discuss Hyperledger, a crypto ledger platform aimed at enabling private currencies and commodity-backed coins. Hyperledger employs a new, or rather unusually old, consensus mechanism, practical Byzantine fault tolerance. I'll let the guys explain. Today on Beyond Bitcoin, we have Dan O'Prey, founder of Visual Ops, a cloud services provider, and also Hyperledger, where you are in charge of business development. Hello. Daniel Feistinger, founder and chief technology officer of Hyperledger and the inventor of the Hyperledger consensus mechanism. Hello. And Tim Swanson, author of The Anatomy of a Money-Like Informational Commodity, among other great reads, and prominent Bitcoin commentator. Hey guys, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Let's start off with an, uh, an overview of Hyperledger. So uh, Dan and Daniel, could you offer an overview of Hyperledger and explain how it differs from current crypto ledger platforms? Okay, so uh, Hyperledger is a decentralized platform, an uh, open source platform for uh, creating and recording and transferring digital assets. So any assets which are cryptographically backed, which can be traded uh, on a peer-to-peer basis. So it could be sort of AMRs, it could be currencies, it could be shares, it could be uh, anything of value. Um, so it differs from Bitcoin and that's a lot more flexible. You've got a lot more control over it. So you can actually take it and, and you know, run your own implementation. Uh, you can sort of, rather than being one massive global open ledger uh, that's completely public, you can do, you restrict it by jurisdictions. So you have just nodes which are just in the USA. Uh, you can have it sort of a sort of semi-in-house or inter-company ledger, uh, which could be used amongst financial institutions that isn't public, um, and it's just generally a lot more flexible. Something that's unique about Hyperledger is its implementation of practical Byzantine fault tolerance. Could you explain what that is and what advantages it offers? Uh, yeah, so um, PBFT was a, an algorithm um, developed at MIT um, about 15, the first paper was published I think about 15 years ago now. Um, as a solution to dealing with the um, Byzantine generals problem. So how, how you come to a consensus where nodes may be um, uh, either um, acting slowly or maliciously, but you're just not sure. Um, you don't have a complete kind of overview of the, the system. You can't kind of, no Oracle to query to just, um, you know, figure out. Um, and it was, there were a number of solutions before then. Um, but this was um, really one of the, the first kind of clearly defined um, algorithms which got um, uh, which had acceptable performance um, in distributed systems. So what made you guys to decide to make this in the first place? Like, did you wake up one day and you're like, oh man, we need another consensus method? Like, what was your motivation for this? No, well, I mean, it had been. Uh, it, it's quite a well-known uh, solution to um, the consensus problems. Um, uh, our motivating example originally was um, so private currencies. So it's a creation of currencies which are stable in value, so they're backed by an index of, of commodities, for example. So they're not volatile like Bitcoin, they're not uh, inflationary like fiat currencies, so actually creating a sort of stable unit of account which is independent of of other values. Um, so that was the sort of initial thing, you know, there's been a lot of research around that. Um, we sort of got into it via the Bitcoin world. Um, I've been looking into Bitcoin for about a year and a half, Daniel for quite a bit longer than that. 
so we're, we're both fans of Bitcoin. Um, we like what it does and what it's designed for. Uh, obviously, it's designed for just purely for trustless uh, transactions um, at the cost of efficiency and, and you know, massive energy intensive and computational intensive infrastructure. Um, so we're not really trying to be a, a better Bitcoin as such, but trying to actually take some of the benefits of Bitcoin and apply them to real world solutions within you know, corporations and, uh, and financial institutions. So something that's a bit more flexible, you know, maybe more private um, and you know, faster. So do you see this like when you present this to the public in general, do you just see it as a companion, like it works alongside some of these other ledgers out there? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say our, our goal is not to be um, everything to everyone. Um, it's supposed to be quite a specific use case simply for kind of, you know, almost accounting or financial uh, systems. Um, yeah, we're not trying to uh, necessarily replace everything. It's it's just supposed to be quite a kind of specific focused um, project. Um, we have to kind of interoperate with as many other systems as we can. Um, you know, we don't we don't want to be the one platform necessarily. We kind of want to want to uh, integrate and, and uh, you know. Um, yeah, I think it won't be a, a sort of winners take all where there's only one protocol that everyone uses. Um, if you want to have something where you know, like Gold 2.0, then Bitcoin's fantastic for that. Uh, if you want to have something purely you know, pseudonymous and trustless, uh, entire entirety, then Bitcoin's great for that as well. Um, but yeah, for other systems, for actually, if you want to do microtransactions, if you want to do fast payments. Um, then the current Bitcoin implementation and the, the limitations around how it is currently Im- implementate, implemented uh, will be sort of tricky to fulfill those. Uh, so I think there'll be different platforms for different scenarios. So how do you guys uh, figure in with the, for example, Apple Pay, Amazon Wallet, Google Wallet, some of these, uh, I guess you could say, centralized solutions? Uh, how how do you guys see yourself in the mix of all this? Um, yes, it's interesting. Um, Apple Pay has obviously just been released, so uh, I haven't had too much time to think about it other than yeah, what was announced before. But um, yeah, it's, it's great that you know be boosting digital payments as a whole, uh, encouraging you know, NFC adoption amongst merchants, um, which remains to be seen how much Apple will open that up. But uh, at least on Android, you can you know implement uh, NFC payments, so you can have you know, Hyperledger assets being being used to uh, make payments there. Um, so it's not so much just a you know pure payment solution as in rather than a sort of distributed record so that multiple companies or or institutions can work together uh, without anyone having control over that data i was reading a great chain of numbers tim and in that you asked the question uh, what can crypto ledgers or smart contracts solve for large organizations with established networks given the unique properties of hyperledger how do you guys see its potential use cases differing from existing platforms? Um, so, say, we have, yeah, from Bitcoin, obviously Bitcoin's great as a currency and as a network, uh, but if you're a bank trying to implement your own solution, you know, amongst different banks or amongst different companies, then uh, you don't really want to be, say, if you're issuing an asset, say like an ML, or if it's just a representative of dollars on your ledger amongst the bank, uh, do you want to issue that on top of a platform you don't control, which is built on top of a platform they don't control, uh, in the case of Bitcoin and some of the high-level platforms, uh, or do you want to issue it on top of a completely open source thing that you can implement yourself, modify and build upon yourself without you know, need for permission from, a, you know, from us? Um, so it's generally a lot more flexible 
Um, and a lot more simple. It's not trying to solve all these different problems that a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the people in the Bitcoin space are. It's just trying to be a, a simple, replicated, distributed ledger that people can build the top, build on top of. So a, a general purpose account system as opposed to a, a one with a predefined purpose. Um, yes, yes. I mean, essentially it is you know, distributed accounting software. Ultimately, is a less sexy way to put it, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, but you have no tokens, right? So right now, uh, you you figured out something with using this paper from 15 years ago. By the way, uh, if readers are interested, I believe the name of the paper that uh, they they pull some of the info from is uh, "Practical Byzantine Fault Tolerance" by Miguel Castro and Barbara Liska. Uh, so you're using is it signatures to an address? Is that is that kind of how you're getting around the Civil attack issue? Yeah, so it's, well, uh, the civil attack issue is, is one aspect of it. Um, the, um, the, the, uh, the protocol has a, a defined series of steps for, for transactions are broadcast to replicas and it goes through kind of the two phases of, of broadcasts, um, with signatures checked at every step. Um, and only once those kind of conditions are met is the transaction considered committed and actually applies um, the uh, transfer or, or um, whatever it happens happens to be to the um, to the ledger. Um, so the the civil attack is a different aspect. Um, again, we're we're imagining kind of um, uh, flexible deployments of um, hyperledger pools. So um, depending on the, the use case, the civil attack may not be. You may be de- dealing with a very clearly defined set of, of servers. In a particular kind of uh, environment, so um, you're not just allowing anyone to spin up nodes. Um, we are we are planning uh, an open pool, um, which will have um, you know um, pretty uh, open membership for new nodes joining the system. Um, but again, uh, it won't be a, a fully anonymous uh, system. Um, we are in that situation, um, expecting uh, nodes that wish to join the, the pool to have. Um, full uh, EV SSL certificates. Um, that's our current thinking, yeah. um, which should be should be enough to um, deter someone from being able to pull a civil attack on them. So yeah, it's not like Bitcoin. It's not its own cryptocurrency. It's not that anyone can start running the the Bitcoin mining software on their laptop or or whatever system they want. Um, it, it's more around that you know it sort of be limited to one company running one node. Um, so if you wanted to, to have, uh, you know, spin up multiple nodes and join the, the pool in order to do a, perform a civil attack, civil attack, you'd, you'd need to sort of incorporate, you know, 300 companies, uh, get them certified by, you know, one of the existing uh, certification authorities, uh, and then sort of apply for membership of that, that node and, and at that pool. And different sub pools can have different uh, membership requirements. Uh, the one Daniel mentioned is just, yeah, the open pool. So obviously, we're putting Hyperledger out there as open source software. We don't directly control it once it's once it's out there. So if people want to run a pool with, you know, no membership requirements, then fine, uh, you know, they can try that. But you know, we'll be yeah for at least for sort of the open pool and for um, sort of more uh, premium pool, uh, we'll have sort of higher membership restrictions uh, yeah through the existing CAs. I'm wondering what uh, what are the specific use cases you guys envision? Uh, like I imagine. Um... I can imagine things like customer reward programs. 
Yep. So um, as Daniel mentioned earlier, we sort of originally developed it as sort of private currencies. Um, so one of the, the cool things about when we put out our alpha about uh, what in, in July um, was that you know people approached us about multiple different use cases that we we hadn't come up with. Um, so that's sort of the, the cool thing about an open platform and permissionless innovation is anyone can you know, adapt it because it's so so flexible. It is just you know ledgers. Um, so there's been a lot of interest around sort of you know traditionally uh, issuing commodity-backed currencies, gold-backed uh, trading gems, diamonds, rubies, um, some around sort of uh, yeah, uh, securities. Um, so there's one company we're talking to quite closely that are, are looking to yeah, issue, uh, allow startups to sort of IPO and issue actually securities which are regulated through the Canadians, Canadian uh, Securities Commission. Um, another one was to do a credit union, uh, sort of integrating with brokerages to allow high net worth individuals to trade amongst themselves for you know, sort of zero fees or very much low fees. Um, so the beauty of that is sort of once you come in and out the system, you may you may pay fees to come across, but once you're inside the Hyperledger network, the protocol itself doesn't have any transaction fees, um, so it can be a, you know quite similar to Skype in that way. Um, yep, yeah, other I mean lots of. Lots of different use cases. People have come up with uh, sort of fractional ownership of real estate. Um, so yeah, people are doing sort of uh, want to do sort of fractional ownership of real estate. Even art uh, has been mentioned, um, and yeah, just sort of uh, yeah, even sort of things we hadn't even contemplated like uh, content right management. Um, people have been in touch with us about that. So it's been very interesting to see all these different potential use cases. I'm not 100% clear on how. Practical Byzantine fault tolerance um, compares to uh, other other uh, other you know systems that uh, that are out there right now. Could you expand on the specifics of how it functions and what uh, what peculiarities make it different? Um, with reference to Bitcoin or like maybe like Ripple or Stellar or something. I kind of have a habit myself of comparing everything to uh, either Ripple or uh, or Bitcoin. So if you guys could differentiate. Um, your system that would be uh, that would be great okay yeah well um so yeah pdft is um it's a really good algorithm because there are known um bounds in distributed systems um for how many uh, malicious or failed nodes you can tolerate uh, and how many messages it takes to get there um and so the known low, lower bounds are um two two messages and or two phases of message rather and um uh, no more than one third uh, faulty or malicious nodes. PBFT is great because it um, it can reach both of those goals at the lower bound, um, depending on the exact implementation. But yeah, um, you know that's that's theoretically where it can get to. Uh, Ripple's um, an interesting protocol. Um, it's closely related. Um, it has uh, they just published their, their white paper recently, um, and I believe I'm correct in saying that. They can only tolerate um, one fifth malicious or um, faulty nodes. Um, there are some connectivity differences as well. Um, so we're not we're not trying to build. Um, this is kind of more an engineering level rather than the algorithm level. But um, we're not trying to build everything onto to one very big ledger. So Ripple uh, makes some decisions that mean that their network doesn't have to maintain full connectivity at all times. Um, the difficulty with that is uh, if you fall, fall below uh, a certain level of connectivity at certain nodes, 
um, it's possible for the state of the ledger to um, diverge. You've no longer got consensus. You've kind of got two forks, um, essentially, which can then kind of no longer reintegrate. Um, so we have a, a slightly stronger requirement that um, all nodes in the consensus pool have to um, be maintaining, uh, well, within reason, full connectivity with all the other nodes um, in the consensus pool. But uh, with that restriction, um, you can actually make harder guarantees um, and, you know, ensure that you, you're getting down to that um, one third malicious uh, authority nodes, which is the theoretical maximum. I was talking with uh, Justice Renvier recently, and he laid out a, uh, a description of a centralization spectrum with greater security at one end and greater efficiency at the other. I'm wondering, do you guys agree with this kind of view? And if you do, where would you place Hyperledger on the spectrum? Yeah, yeah, uh, broadly, we'd, we'd, we'd exactly agree with that. Um, the uh, With Hyperledger, we see it falling... Um, pretty much over a, a broad range in the middle. Um, so uh, as we've been saying, a lot of it's configurable depending on um, your exact requirements when you deploy a consensus pool. Certain parameters are available to you to tune it towards kind of higher centralization, um, in which case, you know, certain avenues of uh, attack or, um, you know, malicious behavior are just not feasible um, versus being more open. It doesn't get completely down to the kind of completely trustless um, Bitcoin level. Um, and equally, it doesn't really make sense. It's not a centralized protocol. Uh, I guess theoretically, you could run just one, one node, but wouldn't really buy you anything. Um, so it's, it's <laughs> kind of a kind of a spectrum in the middle. Um, so it, it slightly depends on the exact deployment strategy you've got. Tim, you've always been a vocal opponent of, or I I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but a critic at least of the proof-of-work consensus systems. How do you find um, practical Byzantine fault tolerance stacking up? Well, just for the record, I actually think Eustace uh, Renvier's uh, explanation is actually pretty good in terms of, like, if you want to do decentralization, it costs you something. That cost is an efficiency. That cost requires capital expenses, as we see in Bitcoin. On the other hand, if you want to have something that's very efficient, centralized platforms are, are pretty good. So it's it's not so much that I dislike proof of work, it's just it's being cobbled to do something it's not particularly efficient at when we have other other systems to do. So um as far as what what I've seen with uh with PPEFT, uh it looks uh like a, a particular I don't want to say solution, but a, a particular um alternative to uh, coming up with consensus that at least for the past 15 years has stood the test of time in, in, in this particular implementation. Um, I, I do know that there are uh, some some critics, and if the audience is, is willing to, to hear, actually, since that's apparently my role in this community is to, to provide criticism. Um, so I received a, a message uh, with from Dominic Williams. He's working on a on an alternative uh, project called Pebble. And uh, let, me, let me just read you a, a quick couple comments from him, so that way you guys could. By the way, they've, they've had it back and forth, so that this is this is an ongoing thing between these two groups. Uh, Dominic says PBFT is derived from Paxos and is leader-based. This means that a leader elects itself, then tries to bring the others to consensus. If you attack DDoS or delay the leader, another elects itself, and you can keep doing that to make it live log. Furthermore, it passes too many messages to be useful with the kinds of large consensus groups that should be used by cryptocurrencies. 
nodes would spend all their time transmitting consensus messages rather than transactions. So that's some feedback, and I was wondering if either Dan or Daniel had any any comments on that. Yeah, so initially I just sort of said that yeah, we're, we're not a cryptocurrency. We're not trying to be, you know, from the little I know about Pebble from what's been put out there, uh, you know, they are trying to be almost the old better Bitcoin. Um, so, yeah, so it's not trying to actually just be a cryptocurrency that is uh, is resilient in that way. But, um, yeah, it also depends on the use case. So if you want to be a big open cryptocurrency, then, yeah, you've, you've got to approach it more like Bitcoin and, and possibly more like Pebble. Um, but if you're sort of implementing it inside, uh, you know, within a group of companies or doing air miles between you know, multiple airliners, uh, it's not necessarily public. It's not necessarily, um, you know, going to be attacked or it's within like sort of financial institutions as uh, so you don't have that issue. Um, but yeah, Daniel can comment more on. Yeah. I mean, I'd say, um, there are, there are engineering, um, deals that you can um, work with there. I mean, if your node architecture, each individual node is um, capable of rejecting malicious nodes quickly, um, you know, in a multi-threaded environment, ideally you'd have, you'd, you'd not be able to, to lock the system with um, with uh, uh, malicious or bad transactions. Uh, PBFT itself, um, as was described uh, back in 99, um, has actually led to um, a lot of other um, refinements and modifications around the core idea. And uh, quite a few, there are some interesting papers recently um, describing systems which are slightly better at dealing in particularly hostile or malicious environments. Um, one of those is Aardvark, um, which is a, a name of an algorithm, which is just a, a slight kind of refinement um, and drawing out some of the more details on how you handle um, uh, uh kind of denial of service or um, attacks like that. Um, and there's another one, RBFT. Um, again, just a slight modification around the same idea. So I, I, I don't think it's an intrinsic problem in the algorithm itself. Um, I think there are engineering decisions that you can, you can take to uh, essentially mitigate or eliminate those risks. That sounds uh, pretty reasonable. Uh, I wonder, do you guys have any deployments on the horizon? Uh, no, so we just launched our alpha uh, recently. So we're, we're planning to be production ready in Q1 next year. Um, so that'll be one when the, you know, the, the fully working code is out there and ready for people to, to start playing around the open pool. Um, and then we will be yeah, launching our own sort of premium pool uh, around that time or, or shortly afterwards. And so I suppose your business model is to be the... Uh be the experts on the network. Right, so yeah, Hyperledger itself is open source and that, that's a sort of project. So we will have a commercial entity which is entirely separate from that uh, and it'll have sort of no benefits over anyone else building on top of Hyperledger other than, you know, obviously us having the credibility as founders and, and the knowledge of the system. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll be uh, sort of, the business model is, is constantly being refined. Obviously we're a young startup, um, but the sort of idea is around that if you want to have a, a premium pool and there can be certain integrations with that premium pool with, with other systems that um, we'll be announcing later. Um, but then you can launch your assets on that. Uh, it's got higher levels of, of guarantees around it, uh, security audits. Uh, we could actually sort of vet the, the assets that are issued on there to make sure that, say, if you're doing a gold-backed commodity, you can get an independent auditor to, to audit the fact that you do have the amount of gold you say you do. Anyone can look up on Hyperledger to see how many assets have been issued by that uh, issuer uh, and to make sure that those match so we can sort of make more guarantees around the assets as well 
Um, but yeah, there are sort of there are quite a few various different uh, ideas that we have around the business model uh, that are still being refined. So I actually have a question about that. So uh, one of the advantages of Bitcoin, and I've mentioned this a couple times in other other media, uh, are that it reduces uh, overall mediation costs and transaction costs because it does away with these particular audits. So if you're having to integrate uh, an auditing mechanism for either KYC, AML, or just to prove that something actually exists, how does that uh, add to the overhead and make you any more competitive than, say, a centralized solution in, in New York or at London? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd say with with Bitcoin, it's still going to face KYC and sure. AML mm-hmm. um, uh, laws. I mean, that's that's still a massive open open space uh, to problems to be dealt with in in Bitcoin. Um, again, uh, we're trying to strike this balance between the fully centralized solutions and the, um, you know, completely distributed trustless solutions. So, um, again, our, our approach is always going to be kind of uh, leave it up to the people issuing the assets as to the amount of, of um, you know, third party cross checks and, and you know, it, if you are a massive centralized bank, yeah, you can probably get away with just running a centralized solution. Uh, and people have a lot of trust in you, but if you're if you sit somewhere in the middle, you know, then then you're going to have to trade off, um, you know, partly with doing doing the sort of the checks and cross checks that you can, but you know, working with others in a kind of decentralized environment um, to ensure that people have as much trust in your ledger, uh, you know, in the assets that you're issuing, um, to make your your business commercially feasible on top of it. Yeah, I mean, anytime you come out of the technology and into the real world to, to real assets, you have to have some sort of bridge between the two, and there's there's naturally going to be some form of trust. Uh, someone has to say store the gold somewhere, um, and someone has to be in charge of redeeming it. So you can't just make a pure technology. You know, the gold can't be digitally transmitted. It's just a representative token. Um, so then that's the same with you know with share issuance. If you're you're issuing shares then you could hold the certificate for that and say, you know, theoretically in the real world, if no one can take that away from you, you still have to trust the, the company issuing the shares that they're not going to issue more or that they're you know, not going to do something illegal or, and trust the securities exchange. Um, so, yeah, anytime you touch the real world, there has to be some element of trust or some element of redeemability. There's just no way around that. So, Fire, I'm getting the sense that you guys see a future where granular assets like shares or units of gold, say, are going to be represented and traded using these cryptographic ledgers, you know, and uh, and I kind of I get the impression that hyperledger is a way of addressing that future need. Yes, so sort of currently you've got all these sort of siloed walled gardens and you know, central exchanges, um, and they're the you know you've got your your brokerage account, your savings account, or you know, for various different assets. So in the future, perhaps you can have exchanges and assets which can be portable across you know multiple exchanges so you could buy an asset at one exchange um you know and then trade it somewhere else someone can build on top of it um you know, depending on the, the rules of the ledger again so they could be different depending on regulatory requirements um or the requirements of the issuing company but yeah so anything sort of move around in this yeah internet of value um for you know peer-to-peer trading of anything of value yeah actually i had a another uh question so there was an article a few days ago from uh, Daniel Carey at CoinDesk uh, talking about Stellar, Ripple, Hyperledger, and uh, Proof of Work. 
And uh, if, if readers are interested, actually, Daniel was actually going to be on the show and had some stuff come up, but uh, he suggested that we look at, for some for interesting comments. Uh, readers could go ahead and look at the actual comments of that article because there was a lot. There's obviously there's some. There was some partisan, uh, you know, back and forth with some fanboys and stuff like that. But there were some genuinely interesting questions, and one of them was uh, from Ardia, who's actually also working with Dominic on the Pebble Project. And okay, so let me, actually let me read one of his. Let me, let me read what Ardia actually wrote. Uh, he he says uh, Bitcoin solves this problem by by replacing node-based voting with voting based on proof that computing work has been done, such that an attacker can only vote in proportion to computing power they have expensively required. So again, going back to what you guys were talking about uh, at the very uh, beginning, um, in terms of how you prevent a civil attack, do you see not necessarily with your own approach, but do you see any other like uh, in, uh, actual implementable way in terms of like uh, proof of stake? Are any of these systems um, actually able to arrive at consensus uh, and prevent civil attacks, and prevent the this this forking issue, the nothing at stake issue that creates this this forking incentive where you can vote on both stakes. Is that something that will ever affect you, or do you, do you actually see any of these proof of stake systems have any uh, uh, long term longevity besides just white papers? So um, one of the differences with Hyperledger versus a lot of these these other schemes is that there's no one built in asset or built in currency. Um, so something like Proof of stake, anything that's rewarding, um, you know, with a particular unit, um, doesn't necessarily make sense on Hyperledger um, because, well, which which unit do you choose? There might be a lot um, in a ledger, uh, and they might not all be uh, within a pool, sorry, uh, and they might not all be um, exactly equivalent. Um, I think they're certainly very interesting for people building um, uh, these um, consensus systems around one particular um, asset. Um, you know, Bitcoin-like systems, then, um, yeah, I definitely, I think they're very interesting and potentially down the road, I think um, uh, there are still some open questions I know about them, but there are some, there's some very interesting work going on with those um, and I can certainly see those um, tackling some of the problems that Bitcoin's been facing with, uh, you know, the, the very expensive, um, kind of uh, very inefficient uh, security mechanisms that it's working with. Um, but they don't apply directly to Hyperledger. I, they, they, they don't uh, deal with us. It doesn't affect us directly. Hyperledger's more of a tool as opposed to a... Uh, like a lot of these currencies are, are issued and then they're used as anti-spam mechanism or um, or as a means for for speculation to to incentivize development, whereas that's not what you guys are... Um, you guys seem to be developing just fine and... Uh, and you don't require that spam mechanism? Um, no, we don't. So we don't have anything uh, equivalent to us on native currency. Um, so we, we sort of take the approach that yeah, perhaps those, I mean, it's not really proven that those things actually do prevent spam. Um, if you take the example of email, um, you know, say Ripple, for example, like to say that sending money is as easy as sending an email. But, you know, you don't need to buy a stamp to send an email and, and Ripple you know, don't own half the world's stamps to start with. And, um, so I think it's a bit of a retroactively they, they've they've tried to make justifications for having it in there when it is you know, an asset that they hope to appreciate in the future and use for funding. Um, so we're actually taking it from a user first perspective that if you want to start using a system, you can just go to our website and install it right there and then and start using it. Um, you don't need to you know to actually post on a forum and request someone sends you some native currency that you you, you know you 
you've never heard of before. Um, real world users don't want to have to buy a currency to send another currency. Um, Whoa, you don't want to introduce more middlemen. What's the deal, bro? Yet another old, you know, old currency that you have to buy that gets someone else get rich when you're building their system. Um, yeah, so, I mean, if, yeah, with email, say, you know, email's the classic example everyone uses. If, if, if email had some sort of weird native currency that no one had heard of that you had to buy in order email to use coin. it, email coin, then, yeah, you might cut down on spam, but you'll probably cut down on a hell of a lot of usage, both through barriers of entry and also if you want to say send newsletters in the example of email, that might cost you, you know, you misconstrued as spam. So there could be potentially legitimate use cases. Um, for example, if you're doing, you know, if, if it's just a, you know, multiple banks again, uh, trading amongst themselves, uh, they're not going to be spamming the system in, inside their sub pool. So what's the need for a native currency? Um, so if they're, yeah, doing high frequency stuff, then it's really just a sort of indirect tax on the system for the, uh, the issuers. And we'd rather go the traditional route and actually build valuable services and products that people will pay directly for without trying to introduce this, uh, yeah, currency that creates uh, misalignment between the sort of users' goals and the company's goals. Hmm, that's a that's an attitude that I'm seeing crop up more and more, and um, and kind of some new new developments that are coming along. And as people stop trying to replicate Bitcoin and start to actually develop the ideas further that were uh, that were brought up with Bitcoin. I actually did have a, uh, so just to play the devil's advocate, I'm sure someone in the Bitcoin world like Gavin would say, uh, well, maybe not Gavin, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but somebody would say, hey, we did have spam on the network. Somebody, several times actually in the history of Bitcoin has just flooded the network with basically one Satoshi's, and that's the reason why we have a spam, uh, basically a speed bump now. I think it's 5460 is the minimum, uh, and that's why you have assets like Counterparty and Masterform, which is just above the spam limit. Uh, so... If that actually happened on a public ne- network like that, again, I know you, you said that Goldman and Morgan, they're not going to DDoS each other if they're, you know, there's no benefit for them with their own private network like that. But, uh, I, I guess you, you're saying that you won't have to run into that because you're going to have barriers to entry in terms of certificate authorities. You already have reputation and trust involved with several organizations and within these pools, right? Is that, that what you're saying? The certificate authorities would be for the nodes, not for the okay, users. So, okay. um, so on a pool-by-pool basis, again, you can uh, they can have different requirements for creating... Sorry, on a ledger-by-ledger basis, you have different requirements for creating accounts. So you, you might require that it's you know, signed off by a third party. You might allow people to do it anonymously. Um, but, you know, as with spam, you know, Google gets billions of spam emails a day and they handle it, right? So you just build soft, intelligent software solutions to, to deal with spam through blacklisting, graylisting and various other techniques. Um, so, you know, Google's approach to dealing with spam is, is far better for the end user than them just charging you to send an email. Boy, you just you just got downloaded on Reddit. I can just hear it right now. <laughs> well, no, so I'm not talking about, yeah, I mean, Bitcoin specifically, you're actually sending Bitcoin, so that, that's fine. You're sending the assets. If you're building sort of yeah digital assets on top of that, then yeah, that makes it a little more complicated. Uh, or if you're you know using you know, one of the other systems uh, that have native currencies, then yeah, you have to to buy those. So uh, I think it makes well with Bitcoin, it makes more sense because uh, you are actually buying and trading Bitcoin for the most part. So it's fine for Bitcoin to have, be its own native currency. So yeah, just the the other thing to jump in there. So the 
one of our goals is to to not build this in at the protocol level. That the uh, there's nothing kind of intrinsic in the um, the protocol which which defines how you're going to charge or, or deal with spam. But ultimately, by the time people are building higher level payment networks or, or whatever it happens to be on top, um, they may define their own rules for for engaging in a transaction, which may be charging a fee or opening an account may involve charging a fee. Um, but again, that's we leave that entirely up to the ledger owners um, because that's that's a kind of business decision, so they they can take that themselves. Um, it, but the protocol is completely neutral as to the the higher level approach that you want to take. I had one more question, if you don't mind. Um, so, do you have like a rough idea of milestones for the rest of the year that you'd like to let the public know about? I mean, uh, as you said, you're not trying to be like an all-you-can-eat ledger that Ethereum's trying to you know do everything under the sun. Uh, you guys are trying to do like real practical like pain points and stuff like that. <laughs> I just I just probably lost friends with saying that. But uh, so seriously, uh, like, what kind of milestones or, or goals do you guys have for the rest of the year? Um, Are you allowed to say? I mean, if you can't say it, that's okay too. I yeah. mean, as we, as we said, sort of production ready in Q1 next year. Um, there'll, there's some sort of things that we're you know, working on in the meantime, but nothing that's definitive enough to be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, b- before the production ready release, we'd like to um, get a, a couple of white papers out there describing the protocol and uh, articulating some use cases uh, as well, um, to just show kind of uh, how it can be used in, in various scenarios. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, along, going along with the production ready code launch, um, we really hope we'll be able to get that audited as well. Um, so that we'll be able to kind of, there'll be a high level of trust in the code that we're, we're launching as production ready. So yeah, hopefully Q1 next year. All right. I look forward to seeing, uh, seeing how this is used because it's not one, you know, you've got this, uh, you've got this neutral, like you said, a neutral platform that, really allows anyone to build anything on top of. And, you know, you said, Tim, that uh, Ripple's trying to do everything under the sun, whereas... No, no Ethereum, um, Ethereum, I'm sorry. Ethereum, oh, Ethereum. pardon me, yeah, yeah, Ethereum. I said Ripple. Uh, yeah, you, okay. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> you said, Tim, that uh, Ethereum was trying to do everything under the sun, and Hyperledger's a bit more targeted. But I'm wondering, is because this is such a general uh, set of tools, uh, does Hyperledger enable... Um, things like smart contracts to be built on top of it? Um, ultimately, down the road, that's that's exactly the sort of... Um, uh, yeah, we, we will definitely be looking um, at solutions like that. Um, I'm Personally, I feel like it's still a bit of an open question um, exactly what the use cases and real-world uh, utility for smart contracts will be. Whoa, so judgmental, come on. <laughs> let's, not, let's not ask for real use cases of smart contracts, okay? Let's, so, so there's escrow uh, and escrow and escrow. And then, uh, yeah, predictions so we, markets, don't forget about predictions, predictions markets. markets. So I think I think um, we wouldn't want to tie ourselves down right now. Um, I think it would be interesting to see how that space develops um, and kind of try and work out how it can be built into the, the Hyperledger system um, in, in the kind of the most elegant way possible. Um, we want to keep again the whole the whole goal is to keep the whole protocol um, very small, um, quite minimal, and to not make too many judgments about what people are going to do with it down the line. So if it's going to require that people who want to build alternative node implementations are having to build a whole smart contract platform, um, that that may cut down on um, you know um, 
uh, users who just want a simple kind of accounting ledgers. So uh, I think whatever we develop down the road will be um, kind of optional, flexible system that can just kind of be plugged in on top. If we do develop it ourselves or, or integrate with, with somebody who specializes in that, um, we sort of take the, the Unix philosophy of you know just doing one thing, doing it well. Uh, if we do build other services, they'll be sort of you know, separated from that. Uh, but I would say likely we'd, we'd leave, you know, for now at least, it says likely that we'll be integrating with someone else's smart contracts rather than developing it all ourselves. Do you have uh, who else is developing smart contracts? I mean, when you say that, are you uh, do you have anyone in particular in mind? Uh, well, so Ripple Labs have uh, Codius, which is, is a fairly new project, but it looks quite interesting. Um, yeah, so the, the, that's you know, so that's actually a sort of platform agnostic one. So that could be one that we we look at, or there could be more, you know, that come out now. So uh, yeah, it's quite an open and very active space. Yeah, I've been uh, looking at rule-based systems as well. Um, I think they've got some um, nice attributes rather than. Um, sort of imperative or almost kind of not quite sure and complete imperative languages. Um, I think they might have some nice, nice applications and, and marry up quite nicely to, um, the, the approach that we're taking. But again, it's kind of a, an open question. Yeah. Cause there's so much taking, there's so much going on right now. It's kind of hard to, uh, it's really hard to see around the corner what 2015 is going to bring, especially with the massive development of the, this next generation space. And um, and the big smart contract buzzword, you know, I mean, everyone's talking about it. But like you said, we've it's it's all escrow and prediction markets. Yeah, and I'm, cars, I'm, cars too. Yeah, well, I'm sure that will change, you know. But I mean, it, it needs to be sort of a shift within the community to actually go out and start talking to to real businesses. Whoa, trying to find... going back to this practical real businesses. Come on, come on. It's a crazy notion, but <laughs> crazy it is how some products some the successful subsection of products are, are developed. So, I mean, I hope there is there is more of that. And, and uh, I mean, obviously, it's great to have a community who's talking about a lot and thinking about different ideas. But um, yeah, we need to actually start applying them to the real world. I I actually just wanted to tell the audience if they're interested. In, you know, I always like sending out papers and stuff like that. Uh, there is another paper that uh, readers or listeners uh, called uh, Network Layer Protocols with Byzantine Robustness by Radia Perlman. It came out like 30 years ago. It's int- or maybe 20 years ago. Uh, what, was that? what was that again? I'll just type it, write it down. I'm going to check it out right now. Sure. Uh, um, Network Layer Protocols with uh, Byzantine Robustness. And listeners might actually be interested in just knowing where, where the name Byzantine comes from in terms of the generals problem. It, it was actually, uh, there was a, a paper 30 years ago uh, and I've actually I've written about this in the past. Um, Marshall Pease and Robert Shostak actually are the ones who like came up with the term, and they originally wanted to use Albanian, but they thought that that might offend Albanians out there. So they tried to figure out some name that had an interesting t- twist to the actual name, as well as like it wouldn't offend anybody. And there's no Byzantines anymore, unless you you know people from Constantinople or something. <laughs> no offense to, I, I like Constantinople or Istanbul I guess I can't even do the right song right that great <laughs> there might be giants um, so uh, I, I mentioned that uh, and there's also an annual prize uh, the Dijkra prize I believe that's the way it's pronounced and it's been going on since 2000 and they basically award a paper or projects based on how to arrive at consensus or distributed how to arrive 
uh, in a consensus in a distributed manner, or there's a distributed consensus taking place. And there's different ways to achieve this. And obviously, the one that's been highlighted in the last four or five years has been this proof-of-work hash-based method. Uh, there's others out there, and obviously, we're talking about this particular uh, pooling idea using P PBFT, uh, and Ripple has a different slightly different method, and so there's different ways to coming up with consensus. Whether or not super strong up to certain points, that's where you see you know these heated arguments in Reddit and Bitcoin talk and stuff like, oh, this is only up to 80% or 21% or whatever. So uh, anyway, so yeah, if readers are interested, those are some uh, other resources, and you know they can always email me. I'm relatively accessible. Uh, what was your email while we're at it, Tim? Oh, wow, here comes the spam. Uh, tswanson at gmail.com. Okay, and how can uh, listeners get in touch with you guys, Dan and Daniel? Uh, you can go to hyperledger.com or email uh, us at team at hyperledger.com. Hey, well, it's been uh, awesome having you guys here. Uh, anything else you want to add, Tim? Uh, I, I'm i not anti-Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, I'll, I'll, I will say uh, I actually just started doing business development with the new Asia-based exchange called Melodic, and um, if anyone has, we're, we're looking at uh, new assets. How, how do you provide liquidity to non-scammy, non-pump-and-dump stuff? So I'm um, always interested in, in finding out. Uh, I talked to some guys trying to do potato coin, which is like linking up agriculture in Africa. I'm not saying, I'm not endorsing these things, by the way. Uh, actually, <laughs> every day I have to listen to people on Skype try to sell me, you know, snake oil. So uh, I have a pretty high standard at this point, I think, uh, but I'd love to hear some new ideas of people would like to talk to me about a new like commodity coins and so on. Again, I'm not endorsing and always get a lawyer if you're going to deal with this space. <laughs> Good advice. Have you heard of any interesting new commodity coins, Tim? Um, the only two I know that are really, well, are, are listed on any exchange is um, Digital Tangible, their gold products, and that's from yeah. Terra Luce's team. And then uh, Eurocoin, uh, which is... Uh, you, you, they've linked uh, one metric ton of urea, which is cow manure, I believe, or there's, there's an excrement. A component it's, of it, it's, yeah. it's a component, an excrement of, of this uh, entity, of this animal, uh, with a, uh, I believe it's X11, I think, is the hash function they're using on their ledger. So again, I'm not endorsing them. Uh, I'm just saying that these are two that I'm aware of, and uh, people email me stuff. I, I don't know of anything that's actually out there. Um, again, I think you might run into some legal issues because of... Uh, each country has their, their commodities exchanges and stuff like that. So, uh, but yeah, uh, if, if I find any more, I'll be sure to let the public know. Manure coin—that's a really interesting concept. I mean, that's—it's definitely the first I've heard. I, I doubt it will be the last. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Dan O'Prey, Daniel Feistinger, and Tim Swanson for the content of today's episode. Relevant links and contact info can be found in the episode notes. And for today's magic word, please finish this sentence. Hyperledger is a platform for digital what? Hyperledger is a platform for digital what? If you'd like a hint, check out hyperledger.com. Thanks for listening, guys.